If you've been around the Christian faith for any length of time, you will be familiar with a verse of scripture that we're going to look at in our text tonight in our passage. Perhaps you haven't been around the faith for an extended period of time. You may still be, at least remotely, acquainted with a verse from our text tonight from simply scrolling through your Facebook feed. Yes, that's right. This verse is probably one of the most famous verses right now that Christians are posting on their Facebook. And we're going to take a look at it tonight. We're going to take a look at that verse tonight. It's received a lot of attention lately, and rightly so, I believe. What is that verse? From our passage tonight, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, it says this, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is one of those Old Testament verses that we're, we're, we can be familiar with, that we've heard of. We've heard it quoted. We've learned it. Perhaps we can even quote it verbatim. But the real question concerning this verse that we come to tonight, and as you may perhaps see it in your Facebook feed, is this. What does it mean? What does it mean? What was God talking about when he said this? And how should this verse challenge us today? These are the questions we're going to look at tonight. In order to answer these questions and rightly understand this verse, we must understand the context in which it was given. Right? We've got to understand the context. What is really going on in this passage in 2 Chronicles? In the book of 2 Chronicles, in the chapter, chapter 7, what is being said in these passages? First and 2 Chronicles are a part of the history books of the Old Testament that recorded the history of Israel during the period of the monarchy, the time of the kings of Israel. And when you get to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we have recorded events that occurred during the reign of Solomon, the son of David. Solomon, the son of David. Now, Solomon was the third king. He was the third king of Israel, right? You got to go back to your Old Testament history real quick here. And you had the kings of Israel. You had the first king, Saul. You had his, uh, the one who followed him, David. And then David's son was the third king, David's son, Solomon. Solomon was the king of Israel that built the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, it was David who wanted to build the temple, but God told him, no, you will not build the temple. It will be your son that will build the temple. But you remember that David laid the groundwork for getting this accomplished. So Solomon built the temple, and it was a glorious temple. It was a glorious place. Remember, when they were putting together the plans, they said it must be glorious, this temple that is to be built for the Lord. And they built it. And it was a glorious temple for Yahweh God in Jerusalem. And they have a dedication ceremony. Just like all buildings, you know, larger facilities that are built have a dedication, the temple that was built in Jerusalem, there was a dedication ceremony. 
And so they had this dedication ceremony, and at this ceremony, the, the, the temple is dedicated, and Solomon prays a prayer at this dedication ceremony. He prays a prayer to God. Now, on one of the successive nights following the dedication ceremony, God speaks to Solomon specifically to himself alone an answer to the prayer that was spoken at the dedication ceremony. So God answered Solomon's prayer. And it wasn't like a yes or a no or I will do this. It was like a very specific, he literally answered the prayer. And he spoke to some very specific things. So this famous verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14 comes in a private response from God to Solomon at night. And so what we want to do tonight in looking at this passage, we want to ask, what does God's response say to us today? What did it mean when God spoke it to Solomon? And how should we understand it today? What should we do, in other words? God's response is really a remedy for future rebellion. That's what the response that, that God speaks to Solomon in this section we're going to look at tonight. It's a remedy for future rebellion. And, and it's really a remedy for any person. It's a remedy for the rebelliousness of any person, of any people, of any nation. It's a remedy for rebellion. And so let's read it and look it into this passage. You say, well, I'm not rebellious. <laughs> Give me your mom's phone number. I'll ask her. <laughs> right? She can tell me all about that. We've got a little, I think I said it a couple weeks ago, we've all got a little James Dean in us, right? So let's look at this passage and read it tonight. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 12 through 22. The first key in the remedy for rebellion is this. Humble yourself. Before God. Let's pick it up. Verse 12, 2 Chronicles 7. It says this Then the Lord Yahweh appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For, for now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may, may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man, a ruler in Israel. The first key in the remedy for rebellion is this. Humble yourself before God. 
Now, what God does in this response, he's responding to the prayer that was prayed at the dedication ceremony. And God, so God tells Solomon, he says, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. I was there at the ceremony. Great ceremony. Amen? Wonderful, wonderful situation. I've heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place. I've chosen this place to be a place for myself, a place for sacrifice unto myself. And I will, I will look at this place. I will look to this place. I will look to the people that come to this place to worship me. And I will have my ear attentive to this place. Why? Because I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, a place for sacrifice. Then almost immediately, God seems to really shift gears. Seems like we're off to a good start. I've chosen this place. I've heard your prayer. It's a house of sacrifice. All this great stuff. But God shifts gears. He's heard Solomon's prayer. He's accepted the temple as a house of sacrifice for himself. And he said that he would answer prayers. But then he proceeds to tell them what to do in the future when they completely rebel against him. Yeah. God is just seeing the dedication of the temple that was built for him in Jerusalem, and it was a glorious, glorious place. I mean, if you ever do the study on all that went into building the temple, the amount of gold, the silver, the bronze, it is really mind-shattering. Mind in fact, I did the study one time, and to build the temple today would cost $9 billion dollars. And that's just like a rough estimate of what it would be. It was an unbelievable place. Amen? But God shifts gears and he says, look, I want to tell you what to do when you rebel against me. Now, you got to take it from God. When he's telling you, he's telling you what to do about what you're going to do in the future. You've got to listen. He proceeds to tell them what to do when they completely rebel against them. Now, verse 13 gives us clues that God does send warnings. He sends people warnings. He sends people warnings. He sends nations warnings about the track that they're on, about the direction that they're headed. And he sends them warnings. And look at verse 13. He says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the, the land or send pestilence among my people. These are all Warning signs from God that you're headed in the wrong direction. You're headed in the wrong direction when you see this time come upon where there's a drought, where there's famine that comes upon the land. When there's locusts that come, the swarming locusts and the pestilence comes against you, my people, this is a warning that you're headed in the wrong direction. God gives us warnings when we're on the wrong track. When you're, when you're kind of headlong into rebellion, you're often missing the warning signs. You're missing the warning signals. You just seem to have a one-track mind headed straight for rebellion. But God does this. He, he warns. He warns us. He does things to warn his people that they are on the wrong track to open rebellion against him. Let's take a look at those things. The first one is drought, when I shut up the heavens, when there's no rain. 
The drought was a, would mean a famine on the land. And the famine would mean tremendous hardship that would come. And so this would be a hardship and, and this would be a warning sign to say, hey, what's going on? He then uses a metaphor of locusts and pestilence coming against the land and the people. A, a, a metaphor of locusts coming against the land and a pestilence coming against the people. The prophet Joel would pro later prophesy of an army of locusts coming against the city, coming at the command of God to bring his judgment upon the, the city. What's funny is, back about 25, 30 years ago, we, we sang a song in worship that actually kind of got this idea wrong of Joel chapter 2. It was actually, it was a song called Blow the Trumpet in Zion. You remember that? And we used to sing it in, in church, and I remember singing it, and it was one of those songs where everybody sang, and, and it was kind of one of those victory songs, you know? It's like, yeah, blow the trumpet in Zion because, you know, we're on God's side, and he's going to come and do, you know, you know, damage to his enemies, and he's, he's, he's going to come in here, and he's going to do this thing. Well, I don't know who wrote the song. I didn't look up the author of the song or anything, but it completely missed the context of that verse that was used to write that song. Because the song isn't about the people of God having victory. The song is taken from the context of Joel, the prophet who issued a prophecy about locusts, an army coming upon the city to bring judgment upon the people of God because they had turned their backs on God. And it was blow the trumpet in Zion. We did get this right. Sound the alarm. <laughs> Sound the alarm on God's holy mountain. Right? Where that temple was dedicated. Sound the alarm on God's mountain. Because we're headed in the wrong direction. We're headed in the wrong direction. Now, people, I remember, people, we would sing it. It would be a joyous celebration of a supposed victory in God. But it was about the army that would come under the command of God, bringing judgment upon the people of the Lord who had turned away from him in open rebellion. So here God tells us the warning signs from him concerning rebellion and apostasy. Some of them would be weather-related, and some of them would be attacks from the outside. Now, if you're tracking with me thus far, you've already asked a question in your mind. Is every drought, is every attack, is every situation like that, is that really a warning from God that something's going on and we're heading in the wrong direction? And I would answer the question like this. No, every... Every weather situation is not a warning from God. Every attack, some attacks are just attacks. But there are some that are. In other words, I wouldn't say they, they all were, but I wouldn't say they all aren't. You follow me? You follow what I'm saying? So, so what it does for the people of God is it puts us in a situation where when those things happen, we do need to be introspective. And we generally are. 
When things happen in our lives that are negative, when things don't go our way, or maybe they're severely negative, maybe there is a drought in our lives financially or otherwise, maybe there is attack coming in interpersonally or from without, that we do get introspective. And by introspective, I mean we sit and we ponder and we ask all the questions that every single one of us has asked. Why? Why is this happening? What's going on? God, where are you in all of this? And I think those are great questions. I think those are great questions because God has our attention. Amen? God has our attention. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to get our attention. And he does want to warn us. And so I think what we need to do during those times is when we're having those moments of inward reflection, we need to ask the Lord those questions. And maybe we can follow the lead of Solomon's dad, David, who asks those questions too, right? In Psalm 139, pick it up, verse 23, I'll have it on the screen for you. David said this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so I think what we can do is we can look at David here and we can look and we can say, look, David going through a difficult time asking God, search me. Job did the same thing. Amen? Job did the exact same thing. God, look, he even pleaded his case before God. Said, hey, I'm not really that bad of a guy. I mean, I'm a decent guy here. You know? What's going on? What did I do? And those are great questions. And I think we can ask those questions. And the question really is, know me, God, and search my heart. He knows our heart. Amen? The real, what David's really saying is, expose it for me. Expose it for me so that I can see it, God. What, what is it that's in my heart? Do I have any wicked way in me? If there is, just please reveal it to me because I want you to lead me in a way everlasting, of everlasting life. Now, that brings us to our famous verse, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear heal their land. So the point here is that when you have rebelled against me and the drought has come, the famine and the locust and the pestilence have come, there is a remedy for the situation. There is a remedy. If my people, if my people who've turned away from me will humble themselves before me, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, turn from their wickedness, then I will heal their sin. I will heal their land. And we learn from this that humility is the first step of salvation. Humility 
is the first step towards salvation. Amen? He gives grace to the humble. This is where we put ourselves in a posture to receive what God wants to do in our lives. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if my people will humble themselves and seek my face, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and this and this. I'm going to hear. I'm going to heal. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to heal your land. Amen? It's on bended knee that we receive the grace of God. Amen? Now, so humility is the first step towards salvation. The second step of salvation is repentance. You start with humility. Second step, repentance. How's that? If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and what? Turn. Turn from their wicked ways. Turn from wickedness. And this is really a great definition of repentance. Repentance isn't like a feeling of being sorry. It's, 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 it's really, there, sorrow is a completely different category. There's a sorrow, there is two kinds of sorrow in the Bible, by the way. There's a sorrow that leads to death, and there's a, there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Repentance is turning toward God. It's turning away from wickedness. It's turning away from your wicked ways. It's turning away from that and going in the other directions toward God. It's literally, it's doing a 180. Amen? Not a 360. <laughs> Some people do 360s, you know? They come in, they meet the Lord and whatever, they do a 360, and they keep on walking the same direction that they were going. God hadn't called us to do it. He, he doesn't want any Air Jordans and everything. What he just wants, he wants a 180. He wants you to do a 180, turn around, and walk the other. You've been walking away from the Lord. He wants you to walk with him. Amen? He wants you to walk towards him. Turn from your wicked ways. We'll talk about that a little more specifically in a minute. But this really describes repentance. God says if you look around and there's drought and there's famine. God said in the book of Amos that there would be a famine that would come upon the land. Not of bread, but a famine of hearing the word of God. It's the worst kind of famine that there is. A famine of hearing the word of God. Because we know from the, from the book that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen? So when you look around and there's drought, there's famine, there's a remedy for the direction that you're going. When you see attacks... When you see attacks all around, might be a warning sign. Turn around, turn around. Now remember what I said. All those things are not necessarily a warning, but all of them are not not a warning. Right? I don't know if I said that right. All of them are not oh, not a warning. That's a double negative, right? I just broke 16 rules of, of, of grammar and public speaking. Amen? <laughs> right now, I see a lot of this happening in our world. I see a lot of it happening in our nation. There's, there is a famine. There is a drought. There is a famine. The one that Amos spoke of, a drought, a famine of hearing the word of God. 
And there's a tax. There's a tax that have come on the land. Now, up until recently, in the last 15 years, we had only been attacked on our soil one time. And it's not too far from where my friend Sean lives <laughs> in Pearl Harbor. And then back in 2001, we were attacked here in New York and Washington. And then I think we were, you know, I think we did okay for a little while. And then, follow me, track with me here. There's attacks all around now. There's attacks happening all around. From Tennessee to San Bernardino, California, to Orlando, Florida, and everywhere in between. I can't count them all. I can't keep up with them. There's all kinds of attacks happening. And I think it's a warning. I do. I'm not going to go all Pat Robertson on you tonight, okay? I'm not going to do that. But I am going to say that I think, I think that there is, there is a warning that's, that's happening. And God is getting our attention. If we'll have him get our attention, if we'll allow our attention to be arrested to him. The U.S. has been going, headed in the wrong direction for a long time. Was it man that was nominated for the Supreme Court back, I, I can't remember which administration it was, maybe one of you will know, Robert Bork. And he's the author of a book that was titled Slouching Towards Gomorrah. Talking about the United States. Now this is actually, if, if, the, if the title was accurate when he wrote it, we're all the way inside the gates at this point. We're not slouching towards Gomorrah. We are inside the city gates because we have gone headlong down this path. Now, what's the answer? The answer is really for Christian people or people that have been headed in the wrong direction, have forsaken God, to hear God, and to turn to humble themselves before God and to turn from their wicked ways. Now, one of the questions that arises from this text is, what is the wickedness that Israel is asked to turn from? Is it just regular, kind of great, you know, common, common, run-of-the-mill wickedness? You know, your, your run-of-the-mill, lying, stealing, coveting kind of wickedness? Or is it something else? Is it something more? 
that God is wanting to pinpoint. Our next point answers that question. As we finish up with verses 19 through 22, the second point tonight is this, commit yourself wholeheartedly to God. Let's pick it up, verse 19. It says this, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples and as for this house which is exalted everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house and then they will answer because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. So let's go back to the question. Was it just the wickedness that God was wanting them to turn from? Was it just your kind of run-of-the-mill wickedness? Or was he pinpointing a specific wickedness? I believe he's pinpointing a specific wickedness. A wickedness of turning their hearts away from the Lord. Turning their hearts away from Yahweh. The wickedness that God wants Israel and anyone for that matter to turn from is the wickedness of idolatry. It's the wickedness of spiritual harlotry. Look at verse 19. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commands which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them. I think God's very clear about what type of wickedness he's talking about. The wickedness that God wants men and women to turn from is the wickedness of going to other gods to serve them and, and to worship them. Now, you, you, you might say, well, today, you know, I don't know if, you know, are there people going and, you know, leaving God and, and going to serve other gods? Well, I think the answer to that question is yes, for some and others, they're being lured away. In the sin of self-idolatry, which ultimately is and becomes the sin of idolatry because you've been led away by your own pride to serve yourself and not even realizing that there's only two sides that you can be on. You're, you're either with the Lord and you're serving God or you're not. And you're under, as Paul would put it, the sway of the wicked one. Okay, so that's kind of how it works. Now, specifically, and I'll just take a couple minutes here tonight for the benefit of some of you who have not been with us when I have brought this up. Because the question for 
21st century people, when they come to passages like this in the Old Testament, and they think, well, you know, these were kind of, you know, foolish, you know, Bronze Age people that didn't understand that there weren't other gods, you know. And so today, the modern person just kind of turns, you know, to their own way and to their own philosophies and whatever it was. And, and the reality of, of the matter is that the, the Bible actually teaches something actually quite contrary to that thought. And we've talked about this before, and I believe it must be mentioned here, because God is specifically saying, don't go and serve other gods. The first commandment is, you shall not have any other gods before me. If there aren't any other ones, then it's kind of a poorly written commandment. But it's a greatly written commandment, amen, because of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is the host of heaven. He's the God of the host of heaven. He's the God of hosts. He's Yahweh of hosts. There is a host of spiritually, spiritual beings that were with God before the creation of the world. We learn this from Job when it tells us that the sons of God actually cheered for joy when the foundation of the earth was laid. Who's that? The Beneha Elohim, the, 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 the angels, the, 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 which is really a job description, not an actual uh, class. It, 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 the, the sons of God were there cheering as God laid the foundation of the world. But as you know, some of them went into rebellion. And what happened is as the Bible progresses, and we're going to pick up on this theme in Genesis, and I look forward to it. We're going to pick up on this theme in Genesis. What happened in Genesis chapter 11, we know it as the event of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, when God disrupted the people and he disrupted the language, we understand that from that passage in Genesis 11. But we understand it more clearly as it is recorded for us in another passage in the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So I want to just take a look at that passage very briefly because I want you to understand what God is talking about so that when you read your Old Testament and even your New Testament, amen, people say, oh, well, I'm a New Testament guy. This is all the way through the New Testament too. I don't want to fool with this. Well, it's all the way through and we'll, we'll, we'll show you where it's, this is, the, this is what the Bible is actually about. In Deuteronomy 32, um, it says this, verse 7, I'll have it up on the screen. It says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. Verse 8, tell you what? What are they going to tell you? Here's what they're going to tell you. When the Most High, see that language? When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided man, and he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So here's what God did. When God separated the language at Babel, he did more than just confuse the language and send people on their merry way. Okay? That's kind of like what I, 
what I would call kind of the crayon Christianity version of, of what actually happened. Here's the crystal, here's the, here's the, the HD, the 4K, okay, understanding of what happened at, at, at Genesis 11. God divided man, and he divided and created the borders and the territories of man. And how did he divide them? He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. In other words, this is the way Paul put it in Romans chapter 1. He gave them up. He gave them up. Why? Because they wanted to go. When We're, we're going to study Babel. Okay, We're going to study Babylon. And we're going to study... When we come to that passage, we're going to study what Babylon is all about. And the religion of Babylon that has endured and will endure, if you read your Bible all the way to the end, read your Revelation, you'll come to understand that there's a thing called Mystery Babylon that endures all the way to the end, and it's exactly what God has to come back and deal with at the day of the Lord. Amen? Exciting stuff. So he disinherits the nations. He disinherited the nations, the people. Now, did God stop there? Did God just disinherit the people and say, okay, I guess I don't have a people? No, he has a people. Amen? If you flip your Bible from Genesis chapter 11 and flip it to chapter 12, there begins the story of where God selects a man out of Babel, out of Ur, of the Chaldees, of the Chaldeans, and he calls him out of the world, to be a person that would respond to him and his word by faith. Amen? Abraham. And he becomes the father of the faith. Amen? Look at the next verse, verse 9. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Amen? So he disinherited the nations, but he's got a people. Now here's what's happening. God selects a people and raises up a people for himself. And Israel's part of Israel's identity is that they would be a light to the nations. That they would be a light to the nations. That people would look on and look on at how Israel was conducting themselves according to the commandments and the statutes that they were, God was telling them when you turn from them. These things are actually great things because these things are going to separate you out from among the peoples of the earth. And you're going to be a light to the nations. And there's going, to be, there's going to ensue a jealousy that people are going to look on and say, well, why are they blessed? And what's going on over there? And why is that land prosperous? And why is that place the place to be? It's because it's the pet place that God said, I will look upon that place. And I will cause my eyes to be upon that place. And I will hear the people that call me from that place because it's a blessed place. Amen. Amen. And... Uh, and so as we go through this passage back in 2 Chronicles, we kind of pick up on that, that theme. Because you look at it where it says, verse 20, then I will uproot. This is when you've gone after the other gods. You've left my statutes. You've gone in the headlong in the wrong direction in outright rebellion away from me to serve and worship other gods. Verse 20, then I will uproot them from the land which I have given them. 
and this house which I have sanctified for my name, and I will cast out, cast out of my sight, and I will, make, I will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. What's God saying? God is literally saying that when they see, when the people, the, the other nations that he disinherited, when they pass by and they see the desolation that Israel's become and they see the temple in ruins that was a great temple that God promised that he would hear from that place and they see it, he says, I'm going to cause it to be a, a proverb to the people. I'm going to cause it to be a byword to the people. What? What's the proverb? What's the byword? That you, that you don't forsake Yahweh God. He's the most high. He's your creator. He's the one that loves you. He's the one that has a plan for you. He's the one that wants to pour his blessings into your life. And if you'll serve him and if you'll keep him, you're going you're gonna to have all the blessings. If you look in Deuteronomy, there's the whole, you know, that whole dialogue back and forth of the blessings and the cursings, the blessings of following the Lord and choosing life, the cursings of not following the statutes of the Lord and choosing death. And he says, on this day, choose life that you may live. Amen? I mean, I get fired up. I get fired up about this place because this is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So, he says, I'm going to make it a, by, a, a proverb and a byword. When they come and they see the temple lying in ruins, what happened here? Why has Yahweh done this? The Lord of hosts. Why has he done this? Now, in Lamentations, you know, <laughs> Lamentations, uh, God, Jeremiah is writing and he's kind of recording for us the reality of this devastation that God is actually talking about in, in, the, in, the, in the verse that I just read. And, and this is what's recorded for us in Lamentations verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8. You'll see it up on the screen. He says this, Jerusalem has, has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile, and all who honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Stop right there. Honestly, it sounds like America. When I just read that, I was like, I felt like that's, that's America. That nation once revered by the, by the world has sinned gravely. All who honored her despised her because they have seen her naked. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Verse 9. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. Now, that's an interesting verse. Because in the English, we think of awesome, right? We want to say awesome, like, like that was awesome, right? But, I mean, there's something that's awesome that's, like, not good, but it's awesome, you know? I mean, you could say the tower's coming down on 9-11. It was bad. It was really bad. But there was, wow, two twin towers coming down. 
the tip of Manhattan crumbling down to nothing? She had no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. So back to the question, and we'll wrap it up. Back to the question, why has Yahweh done this? Why has Yahweh done this? Verse 22. Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. Because they forsook, they forsook Yahweh. And they, now it got really bad. Don't have time to go all the way through the you know, OT history, right? But remember when Elijah was like, you know, having that conversation, you know, progressing through, you know, many years. And Elijah's finally, you know, having that conversation with the Lord and going, God, look, I'm the only one here. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one you got left, God. And God said to him, no, there's 7,000 left that have not bowed the knee and kissed the bale. They didn't go off and just have a party and sin it up. No, they left Yahweh and they bowed at, the, bowed at Baal and they kissed the bale. You read it. Now, I'm a person that reads stuff like that and I go, wait a second. 7,000 left? 7,000 left? that still served God, that hadn't kissed the Baal? Go back to your number. Go back to numbers and count the counting. How many was it that came out of Egypt? 600,000 fighting men with women and children estimated to be at least around 2 million is the, is the best estimates that I've come across in my studies. 2 million. That two million people that sat outside the land and God took them in and the nations and the kings quaked in their boots in their palaces because what God was doing in Israel. And 7,000, 2 million down to 7,000. What is happening? What's happening is that every single person has to make up. They have to come to that choice and that decision that Yahweh God, Yehoshua, Jesus Christ, is my Lord and Savior. And I'm going to serve him. And I'm going to commit my life to him. I'm going to wholeheartedly worship him because he loves me and he's given himself for me and he wants me to be with him and he's got a plan and he's got the, his principles that he wants me to learn and to, and to, and to live out in my life and be a, a biblically minded and acting person, a person that can think biblically about what's happening in our world. That's what God wants to do. Committing ourselves wholeheartedly to God. And turning from our wicked ways. The wicked ways. And, and listen, God said, when all this happens, 
Think about, you say, Charles, you took us through Chronicles and Deuteronomy and the separation of the peoples and the Babel and the whole thing and the gods and the, all this and lamentations and the skirts of Jerusalem and the nakedness and all of it and what's going on? God's so good that he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, Seek my face and turn from their wickedness. What wickedness? The wickedness of idolatry. Serving other gods and even the God of self. I will forgive. I will hear. I will forgive. And I will heal. Amen? And we serve an awesome, awesome God. Who can do that? Who can do that? And my prayer is for all of us. You know, we come to a, we come to a place like this where we're at. And I'm, I've always been one of these people that, like, man, I, I wish I could help people. I wish I could make, you know, if I could make the decision for some people, you know, to just get saved, right? Get saved. Love the Lord, man. You think you're going and doing whatever it is, and you think you're a hot dog, diggity dog, and whatever, man, it's, it's going down. But we can't. Joshua put it this way. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? As for me and my house. And let's be that people.